Amen. You guys okay? I'm sorry. I took a little more time than but I kind of wasn't in a position to grab the mic for a minute. So, you know, one day we're going to be all so uh, there that uh, we're not going to need to preach. <laughs> just going to let Jesus do what he wants. Amen. It's happened a few times. And, uh, yeah. So pardon me while I transition. <laughs> Not that we're moving away from something, but we're moving into a different realm of who God is. And I think that's interesting that we need to understand that there are mo many parts to our Father. Um, And, and there are parts to him that we prefer over other parts. And the hardest part for me is watching immature people, not you, <laughs> but see, see God from only one angle. When he's so much more. And we're talking about the guy who measured the sea in the palm of his hand. If he revealed his fullness to us, we wouldn't survive the encounter. Yet he gives us measures and glimpses of who he is. And I think it's important for us to readjust our definition of God as we grow. Which is to say we readjust our definition of love. See, God draws us with the kind of love that we prefer. And then his love leads us to places where he's revealed in other ways that we don't prefer. But the immature person will only want to bask in the reality of his kindness and his grace, which is a huge part of who he is, but there's more parts to the love of God than just that. And I, I get a little personally, my, my love gets tested <laughs> when I deal with young saints because they think they know everything. And the difference between a, a, an older saint and a younger saint is that the older saint's convinced that they don't know anything. <laughs> and everything you thought you knew was just really temporarily on loan. And then he readjusts it and changes it, and you realize you only had one grain on that seashore of revelation. So that's what we're talking about, amen, is love. We're in Ephesians 5. Um, uh, he, you guys thought you were going to get a break, right? thought Tyler was preaching this morning. You were going to heal from your wounds from last week, but no, you're getting it twice in a row. So <laughs> bruises on bruises. Um, yay. The ladies are happy, maybe. It's hard to make them happy, but we try. We don't do very well. <laughs> But we try. I'm not going to tell it because uh, 
I was told probably not to, but you should look up the joke that Joyce Myers, who's a woman, tells about the woman in the elevator and the warehouse that sells men. If you've heard it, it's awesome. So, um, yeah, let, let's, let's uh, yeah, behind every angry woman is a man who has absolutely no idea what he did wrong. <laughs> I don't want to mess it up. I don't have it written down. Yeah. Nope. Google is your friend. I will not be blamed for that one. A woman has to tell that joke because if a man tells that joke, he can get in big trouble. But I feel like it became, yeah, well, we're part of one body, honey. I know you and I are one, but we might not be yet, so we're, we're working on it. <laughs> Certain things only need to be said by a woman, right, you know? Yeah, all right. I do have one for you that might be equally as offensive, but... I should have submitted I'll repent later. I'm sorry. I will repent to my wife later. So a man dies, goes to heaven, meets God, and asks him if he can ask him a few questions, and God says, sure, go ahead. A man says, why did you make women so pretty? God says, well, so you would like them. Okay, says the guy, but how come you made them so beautiful? Well, so you would love them. Okay, so he ponders a moment, and he says, but why'd you make them such airheads? And God says, so they would love you. Ouch, yeah. Oh, yeah. Figured the last part would bring back everything and make it okay, so. Uh-huh. <sighs> Marriage is awesome, isn't it? If you think you know everything, just get married. <laughs> so we're talking about Ephesians 5. I really hope um, that as we move on through this, that you can see the overall picture and not get lost in the individual parts, okay? And what I mean by that is that have, if you guys have recognized, I pray, that as we've gone through every aspect and facet that Paul has been uh, unveiling towards us, can you see that if we get the entire picture and begin to walk this way, live this life, that at the end of the book of Ephesians, we're gonna to get to a point where the devil has nothing over us ever again. And that's when you're effective in true spiritual warfare. Jesus didn't go to the cross until he said, the prince of this world has no place in me. And his greatest act of spiritual warfare came when he had beaten every personal thing that he came through in his life. And it's not that we have to be perfect in that sense, but what it does mean is that we have to, we have to achieve a completion in God through the seasons that he's taking us through. And we need to really wrap ourselves into the, 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 the counsel of the Lord in our journey. And I, I really... Um, I feel sorry for, for believers who are isolated, who have online pastors, um, 
online churches. Sometimes we need other people to get under our skin other than our spouses. Because if it's only our spouse that's getting under our skin, that puts all of it, all of the energy of negativity on one person, and it takes a mighty strong person not to get angry or bitter. And so a community is where God begins to show us where we're not where we need to be. And if we don't have a community, then God begins to do that in our marriages. Because it takes people to contextualize the need for love. Does that make sense? Let me say it this way. The command to love one another is the great revealer of the hearts of men. It's funny to me that Jesus told us to love one another before he gave us the ability to do it. Why? <laughs> I thought God didn't tell me to do anything that he didn't empower me to do. Generically, that's fairly true, but in this situation, it's not. Because there's only one source for love. And the command to love comes you go and try to do the command and then you realize you don't have what you need to complete the command you were given. And that puts you in one position, the position you were born for, to be at the feet of God, to gain from him what you need to be for other people because you and I don't have it. Marriage will show you where you don't have the capacity to love. So, husbands, you're the target. Husbands, love your wives. That's the command. The problem is the same. We don't have what we need to do what we're asked to do. So we have to go somewhere to get it. You with me? Just making sense. Okay. I want to read this before we get started. It's, uh, it's in John chapter 13, and it starts in verse 34. Well, actually, that's the only verse we're going to read there. Uh, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. I find that so interesting and I've stumbled over that theologically for years because that's not a new command. But Jesus isn't a liar. And so when we see that he is broadening our horizons of what God is from the old to the new, it's not that he's wrong or the old was wrong and that he was right, it's that he's expanding on the original definition that we missed. And there were, many, there were many different words in the Hebrew for love, just like there's five different words in the Greek for love. But when God told us in Leviticus to love our neighbor as ourself, there was no context to that love. In fact, that's probably, it's the greatest command you could ever give but it's the worst news you could ever receive if you're broken yourself. 
Because if you love people the way you love yourself and you hate yourself, then your people that you're trying to love are in big trouble. <laughs> I remember reading that one day when Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And this was many, many, many years ago. I was like, well, my neighbor's screwed. Like he's, he's done. Like he has, he, he's in big trouble. Because if I don't like me and I don't love me, I have no capacity to love my neighbor. So Jesus says, a new command I give you. Why? Because love in the Old Testament had no context. The love that we had in the Old Testament was based upon the love that we had for ourselves. So in other words, if I feel like it's okay to steal from myself and rob myself, then I feel like it's okay to rob from you. And as long as I was treating everybody the way I would want to be treated, and if I found no wrong in certain sins in my life and my mind got seared with a hot conscious, you know, the iron of consciousness, uh, uh, then I was okay to do that to my brother. Right? So he says, a new command... I give to you. What's the command? Love one another. There you go. This is the new part. As I have loved you. That's the context. See, before this moment, Jesus, God had not given man the context of love. It was all around him through creation, through the patience of God, through everything, but man did not see what love was because God had not revealed himself to man in fullness. And he couldn't do that under the old covenant because man was full of sin. You with me? It's interesting to me that Elijah wants to see the fullness of God. He wants to see the face of God. He wants to see God as he is. And God says to him, you can't handle it. He says, turn around, I'll pass by you. When you look at my backside, I'll show you my goodness. It doesn't say I'll show you my love. Why? Because if God would have showed the love of God to Elijah, it would have killed him. Because the love of God is so profound that when it's seen by someone who is an antagonist to that love, the overwhelming understanding of how much that person loves you in spite of your lack of love for them is revealed and it would kill you in an instant. I think in my own opinion, you'd probably die of a broken heart. Just like that. To have the magnitude of the love of God shown to you at the same moment, your lack of love being revealed to him would cause an absolute abhorrence of oneself that would probably cause our hearts to stop. So God's love was not revealed fully until the person of Jesus Christ came and he allowed your sin to brutalize him, and he never blamed you once. (laughs) And he says, love one another as I have loved you. 
And I don't know too many marriages that have strong love where one's brutalizing the other. I see lots of bitterness, lots of justification, lots of blame, either against oneself or against one's spouse. But I don't see a lot of marriages where true love is being shown in the midst of brutality because we don't have yet that God kind of love. We think love is, I treat you good, you treat me good. No, the world can do that. You be nice to people on the street and they're gonna be nice to you. That's how it works. As I have loved you. So why, why was this a new command? Because Jesus contextualized love. And do you realize that in the Old Testament, that word that's used, there's, there's one specific one in Leviticus 18, verse 19, that he says, he says the word love there. It's, it's used more in what I would call an affinity towards one another, a strong emotional connection. And that's a pretty shallow love because emotions change, don't they? In fact, that's what we call falling out of love in modern day America is when our emotions for someone change. Let me tell you something. God is love. But do you know how many times as a believer, he's very angry with you? If you don't think that that's true, okay, calm calm down, Chad. And you need to learn something because sin makes God very angry. His emotions change towards you a lot. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you, but he feels deeply than you will ever feel. Where do you think you got the ability to feel from? You were made in his image. God feels deeper than you ever could. And when he feels anger, it's way deeper than you've ever felt it. If you don't think love can feel anger, then you need to go read your Bible where Jesus braided the whip and went through the temple. And this was to religious people, people who knew God, who were there to worship. They were at church. So we're gonna get into that hopefully as we go on, maybe next week or the week after, that what, love, what is love? So ladies, you're like, oh, husbands are supposed to love me, but what, what is love? See, ladies, it, it, there is a, a, an understanding that love is this gentle place of safety, but there's also an understanding that love is, is very, it's very tough. It's very serious. Love doesn't joke around with the things of eternality. It doesn't take lightly actions that are being done that could jeopardize someone's future. But for today, the new command of love is love as I have loved you. Love is patient. Do you understand that to be patient toward your wife, there has to be a context of her getting on your nerves? Because it's easy to be patient with somebody who's not causing you to have to exercise patience. 
the fact that the Bible says that love is patient tells us men that we are supposed to be that when the wife does not deserve it. That to exercise patience, you have to have an environment that is an antagonist to patience. Does this make sense to you? I don't know where we think this idea that our, everybody's gonna be just good around us and then that's where we, oh, I'm just gonna be so patient with you. Well, of course, because she's making your dinner, she's cleaning up your mess, she's not arguing with you, she's doing everything she's supposed to do. Oh, it's easy to be patient then. No, no, patience is exercised whenever there's an antagonist. See, people will prove to you where your theology really is. See, what we believe is not, it's not as important as who we are. I'll say that again. What we believe is not as important as what we are. You can have all the right things to say, but if you aren't those things, you own nothing. You just deceive yourself with your own head knowledge. That's what religion does, is it convinces itself that it knows more than what it is. You with me? All right. So the command of love is the great revealer of the hearts to men and women. I say mankind. Jesus says love one another. We talked about Paul all the way through chapter four of one through four over and over. Loving each other, the community. Why? Because it reveals your heart when you can't. Most people, whenever you can't love somebody, you blame them for your inability to love them. That's how it works. See, somebody pulls something out of you that you don't like, and it was wrong, but it's their fault that you can't love them. Because we wanna isolate the sin and focus on why they don't deserve the love. All the while coming to God and saying, I know I don't deserve your love, but I need you to love me. Does this make sense? The command to love is the reveal of your heart. When Jesus says, love your wives, you look into the mirror of yourself and see every inadequacy that you have and why you can't. And it's something about the human nature that we won't change until we see our own garbage because we're not convinced it's there until we see it come out of us. If you moved in an area of anger towards somebody that you never have before and saw that in your life, you're gonna be like, my God, where did that come from? But if five minutes earlier, a prophet would have come to you and said, you're full of anger, you would have said, you're a false prophet. So why we don't like prophets because they reveal what we can't see. Pastors and evangelists hate them. They hate prophets because they don't think it's God to say those things. And it is. They're just immature because they only see things through the lens of their gift and that's all. God is much bigger than you, your gift, 
your ability to see. Much bigger. My point is, until we see ourselves act upon the thing that we don't think we possess, we're not convinced we have the issue. So you know what God does in order to convince us? He puts people in our lives to expose us. Every act of you and I running from a community is an act of our own betrayal and our own growth because we're never gonna grow beyond the exposure we're given. Does this make sense? You know, some of the best marriages I've ever seen are the ones where they have a common fight that's not against each other. Let's say the wife is sick. And they have a common enemy, the sickness in the household. And they band together and they fight this thing because of the weakness of the wife. And they don't fight as much. And they don't argue as much. And they don't bicker as much. And they don't, why? Because they have a common enemy that they realize that everybody has the common enemy of. It's just that when, one, when both people are actually healthy and financially okay and everything else, they begin to pick at one another. Why? Because God made both men and women to become warriors. And we need something to fight. And if we're not fighting the right thing, we start picking on each other. It's just like the military. If there's no war... And the Marines are picking on the Army and everybody's picking on the Air Force because there's no war. But as soon as there's a common enemy to fight, the Marines are really glad the Air Force shows up. <laughs> you hear me? It's the same thing with community. When God tells us to love one another, the context is always exposure of where we can't, because I don't care how much you can love, there's more that you can love. God is eternal, and he is love, and his love is eternal, and who he is is eternal, and the definition of love is eternal. And no person is ever gonna grow into the full nature of what love is, even in eternity. Because as soon as we get that part of his love in eternity, he's gonna reveal another part. And then eons of time go past and we're gonna go, how much more of there is you? And he's like, oh, you, we haven't even started yet. So marriage in all respects is the mirror in which God exposes our deficits. That's why so many marriages fail because so many people are broken on the inside themselves. One of the things I really try to do and I counsel people before they get married is to have themselves healed before you took bro two, two broken people and put them together. But the problem with that is is that the emotions are usually so high, everybody thinks, oh, that's everybody else. It's not gonna happen to us until it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? The other side of that coin is marriages who've just gotten to the point where they got over all the hard stuff and they just exist with each other and they don't really have a marriage anymore. They just realize where not to cross certain lines. <laughs> and they learn how to like be pacifists to one another, but yet never grow together in depth and maturity. They just kind of figured out over 20 something years or whatever it might be that you just don't talk about that. We just don't touch that. You leave something untouched in your life and see how long God takes to touch it. 
because that's what love does. So ladies, be careful when your man does start trying to love you in ways that is like God because the stuff in your life you don't want touched. Granted, he needs to do it by the spirit, yes. But it's his job to touch it. Yikes. It's his job to touch it. The nakedness we see in us creates the desire to be clothed. Remember the, the letter that Jesus wrote, writes to uh, the Laodiceans? He says, you're poor, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, you're naked. See, it wasn't until he told them they were naked that they actually desired to be clothed. This is what love does. It reveals. Love reveals the deficits of man so that man can become the full image of Christ. So the moment you start trying to love your wives, guess what you're gonna see? every area where you can. Or am I the only one? Okay. I'm really glad no guys raised their hands. So, so Jesus is really saying in Ephesians 5, he says, husbands, love your wives. In other words, do the thing for your wives. Be the thing for your wives that you can't do without me. Make sense? All right. To be God's love to others, we must first love, learn to love ourselves. You're never gonna be able to love your spouse. This is for both men and women. If there's a part of you that you despise. You have to be healed before love can flow freely. You have to be. This is why Jesus saves us first and then he gives us the command to love our wives. Why? Because he's trying to heal us as an individual so that when we come together corporately, we can fully reveal what's been done in us. You with me? Let me ask you this. In the order of life, which came first? You as an individual before God or you as a married person? You as an individual before God, which is why that has to come first. Every man that tries to love his wife that doesn't let God love him is, has nothing to transfer. The only thing that will happen is that you will define love as giving in to her manipulation. Sorry, ladies, but you do, do, you do that. And love is not giving in to manipulation. That's not what love does. You mean well, but... It comes, it comes out sometimes as you think you need something when you really don't. And it's God's, it's your husband's job by the Holy Spirit to look at you in the right way, obviously, without abuse, without all these types of things to say, honey, we're not doing that. However that looks. And guess what? When a, when a husband truly shows love to his wife, the wife will be exposed in how she receives that love. So it's this circle of exposure that causes both people to have to find themselves back at the feet of love to be able to receive love. You know how many times I, as a pastor, I've had to try to convince people that God loves them and they're 20 years saved? Even you, if I could sit down with you just for five minutes 
and pry into your life, I'd probably find some area of your life where you're, you're not fully convinced that God really loves you. You know it. You know your theology that he loves me. But when it comes, push comes to shove and something happens in your life, your first response is usually not, it's okay, he loves me. It's, oh my God, is he gonna move? In other words, does he love me enough to move? Lots of amens. This is awesome. Okay. To be able to love others, we got to first figure out how to learn to love God and to receive from God. Receiving from God is often receiving very hard things. When God loves you, what does he do? He pulls out the stuff that's inside of you that's not good. In other words, also too, men, whenever you finally get to the place where you are loving your wives, you're gonna be pulling things out of them that are not good. Now your patience towards them is gonna soften their hearts, but you're still, your responsibility is still to pull it out. Not in accusation. Not in blame. Not in criticism, but in patience to pull it out and then walk with them through it the same way God does with us. You with me? That when things come out of your wife, you have the wisdom to look at her and go, I know this is not who you are. I know who you're gonna be. I'm not gonna allow this, but I'm gonna walk with you through it. That's a hard conversation, isn't it? That causes everybody to have to be revealed. One, and how we handled it. Two, and how you receive it. But God uses relationships to challenge your theology and your maturity. Those of you who are in this church, it won't be very long before you finally start trying to pull away from certain people because you don't like them. They irritate you. You disagree with them theologically. You don't want to listen to them. You, you retain your own thoughts on the subject without being open to anything else because, bless God, you're right. Those are all warning signs that your love has limits. Does that make sense? Because God doesn't stay away from you, does he? when he disagrees with you, does he? Anybody who ever comes up to the altar is weeping in their pew or their chair under the presence of God. God could easily highlight a thousand things in your life right then that he does not agree with you on. It doesn't stop him from being there though, does it? If you're not present in your community, then you've seen the limit of your love. John 14, verse 15, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. See, love is not an emotion. It's a choice. When Paul's telling the husbands to love your wives, it's not because they're overwhelming you with their charm. It's a choice. Love suffers long. It has an end game. 
It doesn't quit. It never fails. That word fails means it doesn't quit. You know why God hates divorce? Because divorce shows people where their love quits. And he says, then I will pray to the Father. It's interesting, this is the context. That he would give you a comforter and be able to abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, neither it knows him, but you know him because he dwells in you and he will be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless and I will come to you. Why does Jesus put the context of the comforter and the Holy Spirit in the same area of scripture where his command is to love him and keep his commandments. Why? Because it's impossible to keep his commandments without seeing your inability to do so, which causes you to need comfort afterwards. <laughs> Does that make sense? Failure creates an identity issue that the Holy Spirit has to cover because you're gonna fail. When you can't keep his commandments loving your wife and you realize that you're not able to, you feel like garbage. That's why you need the comforter to come back in and go, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna touch you, I'm gonna minister to you so that you can love and you're gonna get it from me this time. So the context of the Holy Spirit and being the comforter has everything to do with our inability to, to actually keep the commandments of God, which is showing the love of Christ. Husbands, you can't love your wife without the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me on this? Y'all seem a little bored. I don't know. Okay. It's, Jesus is very tough to follow. This is probably why our church didn't grow for a lot of years because people just didn't want truth. They wanted to show up at a church somewhere where some guy just gave him a TED talk with a little bit of music first and then they go home. No, Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, You've got to hate your life. You've got to love me more than you love your family. You've got to take up your cross or you can't have no part of me. The gospel costs him everything. It should cost you something. You're going to stand before a God who emptied heaven for you. And the majority of us are going to stand before him with all of our justifications that are going to melt and all the reasons why we didn't why we couldn't why we wouldn't and they're going to look weak in front of him the person of love so husbands verse 25 of chapter 5 of Ephesians love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is Paul's discourse on advancing the teachings of Jesus. He says, the context, love one another as I've loved you. Paul bounces off of this thought and says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We know the context of love now. It's to be abused by someone else and still desire them to be farther along than you. Yay. 
And there are people that are easier to love. There are people you're gonna love easier. You're gonna sacrifice for easier. And then there's gonna be people, people God sends you to that are gonna challenge the very fiber of who you are. The temptation for you in that moment, for me in that moment, is to not make it about how bad they are so that way I can't love them and excuse myself. The temptation is that. Because God doesn't make excuses when it comes time to love you when it's difficult for him. You with me? So can you see how in a home or an environment of love this way of continued exposure and patience one to another brings about a parental structure that ends up overflowing into the family. And as it overflows into the family, it overflows into the community. And if every home in the church is doing that, the community begins to operate under a certain standard, which means that when the enemy actually comes against that community, it has no authority. This is why over and over again, and I'm giving the end of the story away, but over and over again, when you get to Ephesians 6, Paul just says, stand. People are like, on what? Chapters one through five. Keep doing that. But that's hard. (laughs) Only Only if you're selfish. See, I found that Christianity is only difficult to the degree that you're still alive. That's true. Any area of following Christ where it's hard for you, it means you're still alive. When you die in that area, it gets easier because you don't care anymore. You're like, oh, whatever, treat me like garbage. I still love you. It's okay. People actually don't want you to get to that place. Do you you know that? Here's why. Because if you get to that place, they can't manipulate you. See, if I push your buttons and make you respond negatively, I can blame you for what I initiated. See, narcissists don't like people who are healed. Because you can't manipulate them. And so you know what they'll do? They'll label you as arrogant. Because you can't, they can't move you. You're only moved by Holy Spirit. You're only moved by love. Does that make sense? Sometimes, you know, when people have arguments, they get really irritated if the other person doesn't respond in, in the same spirit. You know what that is? It's a It's a demon trying to get you to fight with things of the earth. And when you don't, they get mad at you. And then they blame you for the argument they started. And then they attack your spirituality. They attack your Christianity, trying to get something, touch some button in you. And when they can't, it really irritates them because there's a simple principle in life. And you need to remember this. All sin must be atoned for. And here's what I mean. When people attack you, especially it's a spousal issue, two, two spouses, they're fighting. Both of them, or one of them, whoever's doing the argumentation, 
is trying to offload their sin. And if they can get you to respond negatively to their offload, they're justified that you're worse than them. Therefore, their sin goes on you instead of Christ. If you don't respond that way and you respond like Christ, guess where their sin stays? And right where it needs to stay. And they stay miserable and they're forced to go to Christ. So let me give you some marriage tips. Every time you get in an argument with your spouse, you're keeping them from going to Jesus. If you respond like Christ and take the beating, it's gonna make them feel miserable. And then they're gonna have to go to God and go, why did I just treat my husband that way? Or why did I just treat my wife that way? Because she didn't respond. If she responds or if he responds in the same negative nature, she or he, whoever's doing it, feels justified that see how bad they are? They even got mad at me now. They're yelling and screaming and it always ends up this way and you always do this and we can't ever talk about anything because you and you're dumping all that on the husband or the wife. Is this making sense to you? Not a very lot of amens. Maybe we don't want to admit where our marriages really are publicly. I don't know. That's okay. The, when we respond like Jesus, the sin stays on the individual and they're forced to go to God. Every time you give in to somebody baiting you into an argument, you are keeping, you're, take, you're willingly taking their sin and you can't purify it. You're not, you're not good enough. It will destroy you will make you bitter. Only Jesus can atone for sin. So you gotta decide who the scapegoat's gonna be. Is it gonna be Jesus or your spouse? Only, because we won't ever carry it. We have to get rid of it. We're okay to put it on somebody else or Jesus. We just know we can't carry it. Does this make sense? So the husband and wife relationships like nothing other. It's it's a, it's a, it's a stronger bond. It, it, it sh- Let me say it this way: you know a marriage is not quite healthy if if the wife is more willing to sacrifice for the children than the husband. You know a marriage is not what needs to be if the wife is more willing to sacrifice for the children than the husband. Because ladies, let me tell you something. It's easy for you to love your kids. But your kids aren't yours. And they're gonna move out someday. And you're gonna be left with who? Not the kids. (laughs) Women will sacrifice over and over and over for their kids. But many times they won't sacrifice for their husbands because they expect their husbands to earn it when they don't require their children to earn it. Jesus never required us to earn it. And he still sacrificed for us. See, the husband-wife relationship should be way stronger than the parent-child relationship. Because the children are gonna grow up and have their own marriages. And you're not gonna be a part of it except for just watching kids and being grandma and grandpa. 
The marriage relationship, if it's not stronger than the children relationship, your home is out of whack. It's messed up. And you have idols called whatever the name of your kids are. And you'll bow and worship them. And then you'll treat your spouse like garbage. Within the husband-wife relationship, it's so powerful because this is where God exposes us so that we can both grow. Marriage is God's tool to get people to be like Jesus. That's what marriage is. You thought it was so that you could be happy and have a white picket fence and a dog named Toto (laughs) because you watched some stupid Hollywood movies when you grew up. No, 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 no. Marriage was given to show you where you're not like Jesus so that you can become like him. Because without seeing where we aren't, we have no desire to be where we should be. Yippee. Young people, pay attention. It's not what you think it is. Jesus prayed in John 17, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna read it, but he prayed in John 17, 21 that, that we would be one with the Father, right? That same unity happens in marriage. Jesus says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. When Jesus prays in John 17 for us to be one, what he's saying is, is I'm willing to marry you and be so one with you that it's just the same as a married covenant. But you're gonna need me in this married covenant to be able to do and be what I am. So when Paul tells the, the Ephesians, especially the men, to love your wives, what he's saying is, is that you have to be the example in the covenant that God has with us to your wife that you'll never leave and you'll never forsake because you're so one that for you to help her is to help yourself. Did you hear what I just said? If you wanna love, okay, we, let, me, let me bring it around. We can't love people any other way than how we love ourselves. We treat people like we treat ourselves. That's, that's the bottom line. If you treat people terribly, it's because you don't treat yourself very well, period. All right, so in order for you to be healed, me to be healed, us to be healed, us to be whole, us to be able to be healed by love so that we can love, we've got to begin to love something other than ourselves. And when we love somebody else, especially our spouse, by choice, we involuntarily begin to learn how to love ourselves because we are one. If you treat your wife horribly, you're treating yourself horribly. Every attack on her is an inadvertent attack on yourself. He likes to do that every week. I don't know why. It's probably kind of fun, but. Every attack on your wife is an attack on yourself. Wives, it's the same thing for you, but we're talking to the husbands. Our responsibility, like I said last week, was to, is to purify pain. Love purifies pain. That's what it does. So the unity that Christ gives the church is so deep that what he is in our life is as if Christ uh, was ministering to himself. So when Christ ministers to us, he's ministering to who? 
himself. When you minister to your wife, you're ministering to yourself. Wives, when you minister to your husbands, you're ministering to yourself. If you're tearing down your husband, who are you tearing down? If you're tearing down your wife, who are you tearing down? You know, many people find this spiritual stagnation in their life, not because they're not in the presence of revival, but how they're treating their spouse. See, people are praying for revival because they want an increase of presence. The problem with that is, is that if you have an increase of presence, but yet still treat people like garbage, that's not gonna fix you. And you think, well, the presence is gonna heal me from that. No, it won't. The presence is an invitation. One, sadly, after studying revival history most of my life is not usually received because people get touched and they go home and they're the same person. You know how many people I've seen come back from radical conferences and revivals and then it's like, you didn't change at all. <laughs> it's like, all you did is had a good weekend. You might as well have went fishing or whatever. Because it didn't change you. So every act of bitterness that we have toward our bride is an act of bitterness that we have against ourselves. So men ought to love their wives. Verse 28, Ephesians 5. As their own bodies. He that loves his wife. There you are. Whoever loves his wife. How do we get healed from self-fragmentation? See, we wanna, have, we wanna focus on ourselves before we can love our, you know, so that we can love ourselves. No, the way you begin to love yourself is you love your other half. Because then you find this awesome principle. It should be in scripture somewhere that it's better to give than receive. It should be in there. I'm joking. It's in there. Somebody online is going to be like, you know. (sighs) All right. See, God's sign for us to change, his indicator, his, 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 his billboard for us to change is always shown in our deficiencies and in our ability to love. If you ever get down in yourself spiritually, it's usually because you saw somewhere in your life a lack of love. Either towards God or towards someone else. That's when you feel conviction. True or not? It's in your relationships. How you treat people. And then the Holy Spirit's like, you should not have done that. And you're like, oh, I suck. You know? And he's like, no, it's not that bad, but you need to change. Because the devil knows this process. And he knows that when conviction comes, if he can steer it towards self-hate, then he, he, he stops the progress of the love of God in your life. So yes, it's powerful to be convicted, but it's not enough to be able to put yourself into condemnation. Because if you go under condemnation, once you're revealed, then you're useless to your spouse. And then they have to minister to you based upon your lack towards them. And that's really hard on whoever's having to do that because they're having to take care of themselves and you at the same time. It's like everybody's vomiting in the house, including you, and you're the only one cleaning everything up. It's like that spiritually. And that will wear you out. Some of y'all are like trying to compose yourself. 
So the first thing we as men need to do is go back to Jesus' original command to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength. And where we find our inability to do that, we begin to do what he commanded us to do, even if we feel we don't have what we need. It's like what I said earlier this morning. You take what you have and you give it to him. And you're like, all right, God, I don't have enough love to love my wife the way you do, but I have this much and I'll try that. I'll start with that. And as you begin to do that, you'll find that you end up ministering to yourself and a part of you becomes healed because you're one with your spouse. And then when you're one with your spouse and that healing begins to flow in your life, you don't even know why things are starting to change and you can't even put your finger on it. You might think it's because you're spending more time with Jesus and Jesus is like, no, it's just because you're treating people better. We wanna make everything so spiritual. I think true revival is not extended meetings and increased presence. That's my opinion. I think true revival is husbands that actually love their wives and wives that actually love their husbands and children that are obedient to their parents. See, because anybody can have a good meeting with all kinds of static flow in the atmosphere, but it's very difficult to transform a household. See, that's a miracle nowadays. To see that, like, oh, that's God. <laughs> you know. But what do we esteem? We esteem the high and lofty, presence-filled moments, right? Well, those don't translate, do they? How many times have you ever had a big move of God and you get in a fight on the way home? Hmm? You know the worst day of the week for most people? Monday. Not because of work, but because God moved so much that the devil's like, I'm gonna steal everything that God did the next day and we're gonna be at each other's throats and I'm gonna rob both of you by your own hand. I have the biggest ministry call volume on Mondays and Tuesdays because the enemy is after what God is doing in your life and he uses you to undermine yourself. Verse 29, Ephesians 5, no man ever hated his own flesh. This is talking about the physical body, but we do hate ourselves internally, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord does the church. In other words, the same way you wish to protect and guard your body, we are to protect and guard our wives. If I threw a dart at your face, you're not gonna just sit there and go, huh? <laughs> you're gonna stop it. Why? Because you love this body. You don't wanna cause it pain. And that's the same analogy that Paul's giving the men, that you need to protect her to cause her the least amount of pain. You get in the way of the bullet. And I know most of us would do that physically, but most of us don't do that emotionally and spiritually. That word nourish means to train up. It's so interesting, Paul's usage here. It's the same word he uses in Ephesians 6, verse 4. We'll get there, but I'm gonna read it early. It says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture. That word nurture is the same word he uses here, nourish, in the admonition of the Lord. In other words, it's to train as you would a child. Paul's telling the men to train your wives the way you would train children. Be patient with them. Grow, in other words, God sees it your responsibility to grow your wife. Please don't go home and say, Chad said you're an infant and I gotta raise you. <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. I see the chuckles starting to happen. Some of y'all are smart and you're correlating way too quickly. 
Put the reins on. It's not what I'm saying. It's that we help each other grow up into the image of Christ. Paul's telling the man, it's your responsibility to get your wife grown up into the full stature and nature of Messiah. You with me? The same word cherish is used here in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. But we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherishes her children. That word literally means to brood over. So the husband's supposed to nourish and cherish his wife. He's supposed to protect and brood over her and be the covering that whatever is coming against her, he's willing to take it on his back. Why? Because his is a little stronger than yours. It's really quiet on that. See, that your culture tells you that women are equal to men. They're not. That's stupid. But we think not equal to is less than. That's equally as dumb. You can take any female body and any male body and, under, and, and put it through the same rigors of training for the same amount of time. And at the end of that process, the man is going to beat the woman every single time in the flesh. It's not that God made you weaker so that we could see what we really are to him. And as we begin to protect you, you can see God as the protector that he is. This thing is supposed to be a revelation of God, not a comparison of traits. It's both parties revealing Christ equally. So that we're stimulated to know the Father more because of what we see in one another. Most of it's just this antagonistic relationship. At best, we put up with one another. Verse 30, Ephesians 5, because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're one with Christ. Just the same way we're one within one another. Verse 31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, that the two would be one flesh. In the next verse he says, I don't speak this concerning natural marriage, but I'm telling you about Christ and the church. Nonetheless, he says, husbands love your wives. Wives cherish your husbands. This goal-oriented thing that God's after in Ephesians is such a, such a unified Front that there is no ability for the fires of hell to pierce the armor of unity in a home. You, you guys understand that most arguments in marriage come from when one person is trying to get the other person to see the value of the way they see it or their gift. And that's the same thing we do in community. Because love, I don't, I don't care about your gift. The Bible's very clear about gifts. They'll work with or without you. They'll make room for themselves. They will. What we should care about is our character and our love for one another. If we elevate people to their gifts, we're just as immature as anybody else. Because a gift works whether you're in sin or not. Do you know how many prophets I could show you over the periods of past history that were so accurate they could tell you the color T-shirt you wore two months ago, yet they were homosexuals, hidden homosexuals? 
You think, that's not possible. No, the gifts, gifts are there. They're just, they're just there. You ever, you ever value somebody because of their gift? You're not valuing them the way God values them. We're not gonna need gifts in heaven. We won't need them. <laughs> we'll be like Jesus. So if we value people on gifts, what they can do, no, we need to value them how God values them, which is outside of their gift, outside of their opinion, outside of those things. And conflicts come when we're trying to get each other to see. No, no look at the way I see it. Look at the way I see it. A hundred times out of a hundred, both of you are wrong. If Jesus were to show up, everybody would go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> he would. you just fall at his feet and go, oh my God, we're so wrong. Be reconciled one to another. How we treat our brides, how we treat ourselves. Many people, many men especially, find themselves in spiritual ruts due to the amount of self-opposition they use against themselves by how they treat their wives. First Peter talks about this. He says, let me, let me jump down to it. He says, likewise, it's First Peter 3, 7, likewise, you husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge. In other words, understand them. Help me, Jesus. Give honor to them as a weaker vessel because they are heirs together of the grace of life. Right? They're part of your life. Do this so that your prayers aren't cut down. In other words, if you're treating your wife terribly and you're not doing what he's saying here to, I don't care how much you're praying. It's not going through. You see this? Do you see how much the Bible puts on the horizontal relationship affecting our vertical? And everybody's like, oh, I just have my personal relationship with Jesus. You can't touch that. And it's like, oh, come on. Okay, fine. It's the biggest irritation I have. Obviously, they've never read their Bible. So much of, what our, of our access to Father hinges upon how we treat each other. You know what that means? That means I don't get to be selfish. I have to stop all the time and consider you. How inconsiderate. To know, that, that word literally can be translated as science, the study. And I love the, the definition of, of, of science according to the Webster's. It says the systematic study of the structure and the behavior of the physical natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of the theories against the evidence obtained. This is what we're supposed to be to our wives. Like we, we, we systematically study their structure, their behavior, their physical and natural world through observation, through experimentation, through testing of the theories against the evidence ob obtained. We help them grow by paying attention to where they're at. Because see, even if you get your wife to the spot where you think you want her to be and she finally becomes like Christ in that area, guess what? She's not done growing. What's your goal after that? You don't have one, that's your problem. You're just worried about getting her fixed here. What are you gonna do after that? See, there's a lot more to go. We need vision to see beyond where they're at. Do you get that? 
It's not about, you know, most men, they're just happy to go home, I mean, you know, make a paycheck and come home and give it to their wife to spend however they want. That's not being a man of God. And what the Bible says that if I don't provide, I'm worse than an infidel. That's one scripture. You know how many scriptures I can show you other responsibilities that are actually in, 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 in compilation to one another concerning other duties that you have? See, some women talk about their day through fear. Some women talk about their day through the desire to be intimate. Some talk about their day through complaining. Others talk about their day through thankfulness. You don't know. Just because a woman's talking about her day, you don't know why. Sometimes they don't know why. You know why? Because you're supposed to help her interpret her why. When we really, most of the time, don't care. Linda, who's Linda? Why are we talking 45 minutes about somebody I don't know? We show her honor. That same word means a high value of money paid at the highest price. We honor her as if it would cost us something. That weaker vessel there means she's strengthless or feeble. To be able to show her love to the weak is the strength of love. Because many times, guys, we just want them to be strong and get through it. That's not how it works. That's your job to just push through. That's what men do. Your job is to help her get through it. The same way God, Jesus is, is to, to help us get through ours. Are you, are you still with me? Colossians 3.19, this will be the last verse I read. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter against them. Why do you think he says that? It's easy to do. Now, men don't get bitter in the sense that women get bitter. Women get bitter in an exterior way. Men get bitter in a passive way. They just shut down. They're done. Well, I'm done. This conversation is still going, but I'm not gonna add to it because we'll be here for another three and a half hours and the game's about to start. <laughs> I'm done. I've learned. If I open my mouth, this is gonna go a long ways and I don't want to. I don't know everything, but I've been married almost 20 years and I've learned a couple things. We need to not be bitter. Why? Because the context is that there is something going on that can cause you to want to, to shut down. Love them. He says, love them. Don't be bitter against them. That word can also be harsh. Let me times when man has had it up to here, like you push and push and push and you get nothing. It's like this volcano that won't move and it's just sitting there. And then one day it just... <laughs> Ever had that happen before? I mean, most men are that way. They can take a lot, but that one moment you cross that line and they're done. Guys, the Bible's saying don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be harsh. But you don't understand. You're right, but God does, and if you think your argument's gonna work with him, you're in worse shape than you realize. Because his commands don't come with little asterisks 
that say, oh, what's that? Oh, footnote 14, uh, if your wife is being absolutely stubborn, obstinate, and stupid, then blow up on her. There's no, there's no little suggestions like that that you can fall back on. So any sign of bitterness or shutting down in ourselves is a signal to us from God saying you need to learn to love. Loving our wives has everything to do with being exposed so that a greater ability of love will be available. How many of you guys have tried to love your wives and you fall up short? I'm gonna raise both my hands. I always have to go back to the king. So let me ask you this, guys. Is it a bad thing that you find that you can't do what you're asked to do but still find your, 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 yourself at the feet of, of Jesus? No, that's how the process is supposed to work. That's how the process is supposed to work. You, you don't beat yourself up for that. That's the process. And that's what God expects. Our personal growth or our personal degradation, it, it never just affects us. If you degrade as a person, it'll affect your spouse. If you grow as a person, it'll affect your spouse. The unity that Christ brings to the church causes her to share deeply with his maturity, his love, his grace, and this is what we're supposed to do in show our, showing our, our, our wives the love of God. Does this help, this help you guys? You understand, you understand what I'm saying? Love is the great revealer. The command of love is the great reveal of our hearts. And nobody in here, especially me, likes to be revealed. Nobody likes to be revealed. But in being revealed is where your healing begins. It's where Jesus shows you, you're not like me. But if you come to me, I'll make you like me. And then as that begins to happen, your wife, I promise you one thing, will fall deeper in love with you. Because Jesus is the most attractive man ever existed. And when you become like him, your wife will not be able to resist you. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect. And ladies, you will have to bear with me the next time I bring some things because we're gonna have to talk about what love really is. And some of that is difficult sometimes. So you need to be patient with your husband as he's trying to love you and not assume that the direction he's taking is because of any other thing other than he's trying to love you. But husbands, you gotta, get, you gotta start doing a better job. And when you can't, you know where to go. Amen? Stand. Let's pray. I pray this is a blessing to you. I pray you learn. I pray it goes into your home and your family. I pray over time that you become so much like Jesus that people around you go, what, what happened to you, man? Like, what? Why you, there's something going on with you. How many of you, has, has it helped your marriage already? Anybody? Is it two or three people? No? Good. Um, so we're seeing hopefully something, you know. Um, so, so go back and re-listen to these things, okay? Father, we thank you for your, your grace. Uh, we, we all need it. 
even more so if we think we don't. Because love is the hardest thing we'll ever do. But it's the easiest thing we will do once we become love, like you. So that's what we pray. Father, I pray for the men in here that they would become love. And though it's a process, and though it's a journey, it's not a, it's not a moment, it's a journey. Though it's a journey, that you would encourage their hearts as they move forward to love your precious daughters, the queens of the kingdom, that we would honor them and cherish them and nourish them like Christ did and still does. So I pray for them, Father, those who are willing for this prayer to land in their life, as they say yes in their hearts, I pray for them. I pray, Father, that your will would be established over their marriages that their children would see what it's like to have the inspiration of the possibility of a godly home, that when they grow up, they wouldn't be discouraged thinking it's not even possible, that hope would be planted, Father, deep in the kids through the life and the peace and the love of the home that these great men of God are gonna begin to pursue And though they'll have difficulty, though they'll have trial, though they'll be exposed, though they'll see every area where they can't and don't, you will be patient with them because you're teaching them love. And as they come before you, Father, make the great transfer. Make the great transfer of love in their marriage. Help us, God. Treat other people the way you treat us. Heal our hearts. Heal our hearts, Lord, that we're not propagating more brokenness. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we have food here. You're welcome to stay with us. Um, Guests, we'd love for you to go first and fellowship with us. You're more than welcome to hang out for as long as you need to.